This is WNXS News with your anchors, Kit Harding, Jake E, ISO on Esports, and Diz on Product Forecast. Welcome to WNXS News, your nexus for magic news. I'm Jake E. And I'm Kit Harding. Thank you for joining us. Our top story. It is with a heavy heart that we acknowledge a great loss in the modern and pioneer communities. Since their introduction right around the start of the pandemic, they've been a constant presence, almost reassuring in the certainty that players would see them at every event. Now, we commend their soul to the Mana Vortex, hoping that this will appease the mighty void for a long time to come. I don't know that I agree this particular presence had a true soul. And why shouldn't it? Cats have souls. Are you feeling okay? Quite well. Why do you ask? No reason. You were saying? I am, of course, referring to the loss of Luris of the Dream Den, as announced Monday, March 7th. Luris was banned in both formats due to its frequency, presenting in 31% of high-wind modern league decks and 20% of high-wind pioneer league decks. The high level of its inclusion led to widespread community outcry to get it the heck out of there. This, coupled with its unique ability to give continued access to early game resources, made it a very good addition to almost any deck. Per the article, isn't a trade-off, but purely additive for too many archetypes. With Pioneer being relatively new as far as formats go, and the constant addition of new cards and sets, Wizards felt that Luris would contribute to a hastening of format homogeneity that is inevitable in all non-rotating formats. They banned it here in order to be proactive rather than wait for Luris decks to gain complete dominion over the format. Despite the somberness of this occasion, it seems that most of the modern and pioneer players are rejoicing at its sudden but inevitable demise, largely because of the complaints mentioned earlier. Who would have imagined magic players complaining about things? Truly, this is the darkest timeline. Joining Luris in the ever-sucking mana vortex. Don't say it like that. Joining Luris in the ever-sucking Mana Vortex. That's not what I meant! Well, how else am I supposed to say it? Happy? Angry? Confused? You know what? I'll just take it from here. As my esteemed co-anchor was trying to say, Luris wasn't the only band we got in the announcement, as the Popper Format panel made their second set of changes to the format. Joining the ban list are Galvanic Relay and Disciple of the Vault, with Gavin Verhey releasing an article dealing the PFP's reasons for these bans. Galvanic Relay was left behind as a strong card with no true home after the Chatterstorm ban, but when Kamigawa Neon Dynasty was released, Experimental Synthesizer pushed it over the edge, for it caused thunder and lightning and weather changes worthy of Ralzarek! I don't think that magic cards can actually affect the weather. Well, your magical powers are all connected to bad puns, so of course yours don't. And how does Galvanic Relay affect the weather? With Storm! While other Storm spells can take advantage of the ritual spells in the format, none of them are quite the problem card that Galvanic Relay is proving to be. Experimental Synthesizer was deemed to be strong, 
but it also enables other, less broken strategies. So no changes were needed regarding it. Our listeners may recognize Disciple of the Vault from our last story about the PFP. When Atog was banned, this card was mentioned as another possible affinity ban, but the PFP chose to give the format time to adapt before they made the decision. And, as the astute observer may have noted, adapting did not quite solve the affinity problem. It was still one of the most commonly played and most powerful decks in the various format leagues and challenges, and when looking into the more powerful deck enablers, Disciple of the Vault was viewed as having the strongest ability-to-cost ratio. As such, it got the axe. Do you suppose it goes back into the vault it's a Disciple of, or did the Mono Vortex get it? Moving on. In a startling example of one of the rarest phenomena in the multiverse, one card was reclaimed from the depths of the Mono Vortex. Expedition Map is back! After the banning of Bonder's Ornament and Prophetic Prism, the PFP was happy to see the format open up due to Tron's fall from grace. However, the deck fell a bit further than anticipated. While the PFP doesn't want the deck to always be on top of the format, they believe it's healthy for players to feel it lurking on the fringes, never knowing when it will strike. Yes, Tron should always be stalking the forests of Argoth, waiting to lure Urza and Mishra there to the site of the final destruction. Not to mention that Expedition Maps banning didn't have quite the effect on Tron they expected in the first place. Yes, there was that too. The next popper ban and restricted announcement is expected to come after New Capenna's release, so we'll be sure to let you know all about it once it happens. Speaking of New Capenna, the March 3rd weekly MTG stream brought us the first previews and sneak peeks of the set since its announcement. Diz, what did we learn? Actually, Kit, Diz is out this episode, so it's me, Daryl, here to fill in. Man, we've learned so many things. For starters, we know there are five different factions, each a three-color grouping we haven't seen in a premiere set since the Alara block. Remember blocks? WNXS News remembers. Anyway, the five new factions are the White-Blue-Black Obscura, the Blue-Black-Red Maestros, the Black-Red-Green Riveteers, the Red-Green-White Cabaretti, and the green-white-blue brokers. I can't have been the only one surprised that the brokers weren't one of the black-aligned groups. What, because finance careers go for success by selling one's soul? Well, not in those words, but that's the spirit of it, yes. Ah, so Urzov, then! Well, they probably didn't want the two to look too similar. What do we get in regards to actual card previews? Five new lands. Ikoria showed us the Triome lands, and now we have their counterparts in this set, and each seems to be pointing at some of the legendary creatures we can expect. The Cabaretti land is Jetmere's Garden, the Obscura have Rafine's Tower, Spara's headquarters represents the Broca faction, Xander's Lounge comes in for the Maestros, and Zia Taurus Proving Ground fills in for the Riveteers. For any listeners who weren't into the game when Ikoria was released, these lands will have all three basic land types associated with their colors, in untapped, and have an option to cycle them away for three generic mana. I guess we can now call them the Tricycles, as the Triumphs should have been. We certainly can. 
We got one more spoiler card, Broker's Ascendancy. For blue, white, green, you get an enchantment that gives a plus one, plus one counter to each creature you control and a loyalty counter to each planeswalker you control at the beginning of your instep. We saw brand new art treatments and promotional packaging, including artwork that seems to depict Elspeth in her best Roaring Twenties warrior garb. The new Capenna story will be released before full set previews begin, with the first episode releasing March 28th. Full previews begin April 7th, with the pre-release happening April 22nd, digital release on April 28th, and full worldwide release April 29th. We'll be sure to keep you apprised of any new previews and changes as we go, so I'll throw it back to you, Jank. This is a good time for a break, and when we come back, we'll have part of a conversation with Hiromi Kota, and ISO will have the event details for the Kamigawa Neon Dynasty Championship. This Saturday at the MTG Nexus Arena, the long-awaited return of the Goblin Chief himself, Hobbs Q, squaring off against Janky, Wildfire, and Kaburi, in a no-holds-barred, goof sensation, silly magic, possibly zombies, possibly shadow, no one knows until it's too late, this Saturday, March 12th at 9 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash mtgnexus. Be there, see the carnage, or don't. Welcome back! Returning listeners will have noted our previous stories about cultural representation in magic, or, more accurately, the lack thereof. However, reception to Neon Dynasty has shown that, this time, Wasi managed to knock it out of the park into a slam dunk. It certainly went more smoothly than that metaphor. What's wrong with my metaphors? You don't play very many sports, do you? I mean, there's Blitzball. Ah, yes, the totally real and not at all fictitious or made-up sport from Final Fantasy X. Anyway, a large part of the success of Neon Dynasty was due to the presence of a cultural consultant team. One of the team members, Hiromi Kota, was gracious enough to sit down and answer some questions about their work on the team and the team's process within the set. For our listeners who might be unfamiliar with you, could you please tell us a little bit about who you are and what your role involving magic is? Yeah, sure. Uh, so... I am a freelance uh, game developer slash writer slash cultural consultant. And for Magic, uh, my purpose was as a Japanese cultural consultant. Uh, like my, my background there is that uh, I am, among other things, uh, Japanese American. Like I was, ra- like I, I was raised with uh, um, what the hell? Uh, Japanese building blocks, like as like a toy, like as toys for like, kids. <laughs> you know how like usually there's like the English alphabet. 
Right. Uh, mine were in Japanese. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, and I was, uh, yeah, yeah, I was partially raised uh, in uh, Japan. I grew up there in uh, Okinawa um, because my, my family uh, is specifically uh, Ryukyuan. So, like, a separate ethnic group from what most people consider Japanese. Like, uh, contrary to popular belief, uh, Japan isn't a um, monoethnic uh, uh, population. There's, there's like at least three major categories, depending on how you want to split things. Um, and my my family is part of the Ryukyuans, which includes uh, Okinawa, which is probably the most famous of them. Uh, so I, <laughs> oh, and then I also studied, I also studied uh, uh, Japan and Japanese uh, in university. So fair amount of. Uh, varied background uh for <laughs> japanese culture which let me get into uh all of the weird things that people don't think about uh within japanese culture and like how you that can be represented uh through uh the game and through uh the fiction that accompanied uh the release of kamigawa many Magic employees or designers, including Mark Rosewater himself, have gone on record as saying that one of the bigger reasons that it took us so long to come back to Kamigawa was the failure of the first design team to properly adapt or represent Japanese culture within the set um, through all sorts of things that you and the rest of the diversity team had to address. But... On the flip mm. side of it, the plane also has a rich backstory and it's kind of a cult classic of magic sets or magic planes <laughs> amongst the uh, players. <laughs> How difficult was it for you all to strike the balance between getting the representation where it should be this time around with also, but also keeping what made it really click for the players it clicked for? Uh, so I think a lot of that speaks to uh, what aspects of Japanese culture uh, have kind of become famous and uh, associated uh, with Japan, uh, mainly through the transmission of media. Uh, so think like obvious bits like uh, uh, anime and manga uh, ended up <laughs> like just sort of going around the world and are available in just like tons of different languages at this point. Uh, and because of that, uh, specific anime and uh, manga uh, genres, uh, like uh, shonen and jojo and uh, like fighting, uh, like those have, have kind of become, I hesitate to say well-known, but well-known within certain <laughs> communities. Uh <laughs> And like those are aspects of Japanese culture. They're not like the totality of it. They're not um, everything that is Japan, but they are reflections of Japanese culture. And because of that, like those are the, those are kind of like the highlights, the people that like, they're the things that people are interested in and go, Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I love Japanese culture because I love this. <laughs> and that's, not exactly the same thing as 
loving all of Japanese culture, but right. it gives a place to start working from. Uh, and uh, what one what of one of the things that people love about Japan and even within Japan are are ninja. So like, <laughs> uh, uh, like even as a kid in Japan, uh, there uh, were like uh, not not just uh, anime and manga, but like also just like uh, books aimed at kids, mm. like mainly mainly pictures, but like not. I don't want to say picture books because I'm talking about um, things that were essentially like about a hundred pages or so <laughs> with like <laughs> uh, photographs of this is what a ninja is like. And like, I remember reading them as a kid and going ninjas are awesome. And like, I, I, I was Japanese American kid living in Japan, reading a Japanese book. It's about ninja. So I'm like, y y you know, <laughs> It's it's hard to not. <laughs> uh, uh, likewise, uh, samurai are also a perennial favorite, um, and again, this this is reflected within Japan, like um, uh, a genre of period film uh, in uh, Japanese culture is uh, right. chambara, uh, which is just basically anywhere. <laughs> Mainly uh, Sengoku <laughs> era, but like it anywhere that the uh, samurai were prevalent. Uh, so like mm -hmm. mainly Sengoku in uh, Edo Jidai. Uh, like there's constant uh, demand for uh, new and cool uh, samurai uh, representation, mm -hmm. uh, and like some some of it even in Japan is accurate and some of it's not so historically accurate. Um, the, the West has a similar issue with um, cowboys for, for right. whatever reason, Westerns uh, got really popular in the West and they rarely represent the actual <laughs> life of cowboys. Like <laughs> something like, 60 to 70 percent of the entire cowboy population was uh uh black or brown and it's hard to find a cowboy movie with any black or brown <laughs> people in them so it's like it cultural representation in media is a really weird thing um and so to kind of pull it back to uh magic in this regard uh, the designers uh, and uh, those of us on the cultural consultancies team, like there, there were a lot of influences, a lot of representations uh, that we had available just because it's part of the, uh, the culture, the uh, sort of uh, cultural literacy of uh, Japan and Japanese culture. Uh, with and uh, outside the uh, di diaspora. So mm -hmm. uh, it was kind of a matter of going, okay, well, what's cool and what's authentic? And that's, and how, how can we take things that are cool, but not necessarily authentic, and then make them more authentic? Uh, and that was mainly on Mendez's side, 
because he he has a uh, much more thorough education in uh, the Sengoku and uh, Edo Jidai, uh, sorry, uh, Warring States period and uh, the uh, Shogunate era. Uh, my my weird uh, Japanese history focus is <laughs> unlike uh, the Meiji Restoration and just after uh, basically Imperial Japan because uh, Imperial Japan had a huge impact on uh, the Okinawan people that... Uh, I probably don't need to get into right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's an that's a conversation for a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> sort of in the same vein as far as the balance goes and where you were talking about just now, what's cool versus what's, you know, accurate or authentic. Were there any areas mm-hmm. looking back on it that uh you wish that you all had been able to hand not handle better, but represent a little bit more or put a little bit more emphasis on that you weren't able to on your run through the set? Um, I haven't gotten like deep into the set uh, just yet. Uh, like I've, I played a game of uh, Commander uh, last week, uh, but like my... Uh, my comps from wizards haven't arrived yet. So I haven't like gotten to get a real uh, hands-on for the full set, but like so far with uh, the cards that I've seen uh, and the fiction that's come out, which I, I'm pretty sure that I've, I had reviewed all of the fiction ahead of time and like uh, suggested changes. Um, For the most part, I'm pretty pleased with how everything's turned out. Uh, Like, there was one bit where I I thought that uh, um, spo- spoilers to uh, anyone who's not complete with the fiction, <laughs> uh, but I thought that the choice to make uh, Light Paws uh, the regent instead of the next emperor was kind of weird, uh, but that that had less to do with culture and more to do with they Kamigawa just had a, a period of strife for like 10 ish years because the emperor wasn't around. So yeah. Wh- why not just solve that problem permanently instead of just sort of kicking it down the road and saying, well, light pauses emperor regent now and maybe the emperor comes back and maybe not. So like <laughs> that, yeah, for me, that, that was just like a suggestion that uh, I made. Uh, and like it, the, the idea to have light pause as regent, it makes sense, but like, I understand. I understand why they did it. I disagree, but it's not my job to make uh that kind of decision <laughs> uh, because like it because declaring regents that eventually uh, stop being regents because the emperor uh, comes back or comes of age, uh, which is historically more likely what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a thing that happens. Like that's, that is historically attested within Japanese culture, like mm, probably at least a dozen times like it's, it's culturally valid. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think 
that was really like the only thing that I've run across so far that I've been like, eh, because <laughs> uh, like, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's me talking from a, uh, a fiction writer perspective, as opposed to like a cultural consultant, like culturally right. it's valid. Uh, and like everything else I've been pretty pleased with, um, like, uh, this wasn't even something that I had brought up, but, uh, in, um, uh, one of the things like in, uh, episode three of the main fiction storyline, uh, is that the, the author pointed out that the Nezumi, the, the rat people are, are marginalized people. Like they're, they're not treated with the same level of respect. They don't have the same access to anything. Uh, and they're forced into respectability politics where uh, they're a marginalized group and they have to act more polite than everyone else in order to get heard. Uh, and sort of like seeing the pushback uh, for that when um, uh, Kaito went to a village uh, was, that was great. Like, I I didn't ask for that. Like that was in place before my my review, and I'm like, that's an amazing detail, and I I would like more people to realize that like not everyone is necessarily equal within the fictional universe, and if they're not equal, that has consequences. Uh, whether or not those consequences get delved into in in canon uh, is kind of the, the dividing line between do the writers and creators care about marginalized people <laughs> or do they just kind of forget that we exist? <laughs> the full interview can be found at mtgnexus.com. Next up, the Neon Dynasty set Championship is speeding towards us at the rate of a dragonfly suit. So for a quick breakdown of the event and what we can expect, here's ISO. Thank you, Kit. The weekend we released this episode while the first ever Alchemy set Championship. Despite the player base initially being hesitant about the new format, its popularity has been proven and this tournament will showcase the best decks the format has to offer, as well as the best players around who will be piloting them. We can expect to see a lot of crossover from standard, like the Naya Runes and Gruel Aggro decks, besides classic tropes like Izzet and Azorius Control. That said, we can't underestimate the impact of new cards as a huge draft archetype from Neon Dynasty is making its way to Alchemy, Rakdos Anvil. This is a combo deck in colors that aren't always known for combo decks, which is sure to shake things up. Day 1 begins just an hour after this episode releases, and will run through Sunday the 13th. You can watch coverage with twitch.tv magic, and expect some returning voices like Maria Bartoldi, Riley Knight, and Cedric Phillips. We'll be back next week with the results. Get- Thank you, Iso. It's time for our next break, and when we return... We'll talk about how Wizards isn't the only company who can time announcements poorly. Are you on the racing circuit on Kamigawa and suddenly you find that your vehicle is down? Or your speed bike is just not working? 
Well, come on down to Katori's one-stop repair shop and slop shop. We'll fix you right on up just as quick as can be, and we'll even let you get a meal included with your bill. We can fix any vehicle, big or small, short or tall, and we'll have it done sometime in the future from when you come on by. It's a repair guarantee or your money back within five minutes of receipt. Come on down to Katori Pilot Prodigy's one-stop repair shop and slop stop. Right down in Racing Circuit. Welcome back. There are numerous content hubs and card sales sites that get recurring mentions here on WNXS News. For one specific name amongst those, it doesn't seem to ever be for a good reason. In a previous episode, we reported on Star City Games making changes to their content model at the beginning of this month, shifting their focus away from competitive content and laying off the writers associated with it. While that may seem like a bad announcement, and it certainly got them a fair amount of negative attention, they somehow made it even worse with an ad for their premium service. For reference, the premium membership of SCG.com used to include access to the premium content, namely the content that SCG has recently removed from its business model. An announcement was made for the updated version of the premium option just a few short days after the writing staff was laid off, and it turned out to be pretty much just discounts and access to specific merchandise. The heat for the content shift itself had yet to die down, but this announcement inflamed it even more. The comment section was functionally a roast, with commenter after commenter either dunking on SCG or just sharing impotent rage. And the quote tweets were not any better, with people calling the announcement childish, saying they'd rather buy from any other service just to spite them, and rhyming their name with other words we are not allowed to say on this podcast. Honestly, the mockery from this one tweet may rival all the mockery Watsi has gotten the last six months. I'm not going to do the statistical research for this, but you are probably not that far off. You'd never do our statistical research. We never have statistical research! Well, we could! You're the one who just took a math class. First of all, that was months ago, and secondly, I just said I'm not going to do it. Of course not. Anyway, this is yet another reminder that there is no upside to being the main character of MTG Twitter, so please tweet responsibly. That's all this edition. We'll see you next time. Same time, new news. <laughs>